J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Jay Gurudev. Jay comes from the Sanskrit Jaya. Jaya means victory or glory to. Guru means a remover of darkness. Deva is the word for a shining one. It's from where we get our English word divine. Glory to the divine teacher, Jay Gurudev. Meaning, I'm not the innovator of this knowledge. I am someone who is a good loudspeaker for it. And the knowledge itself came from an ancient tradition. And in each generation, coming down over the long corridor of time, every teacher has said Jay Gurudev to indicate, I'm not the innovator of this. Jay Gurudev. Welcome to the Vedic worldview. My name is Tom Knowles. In today's episode, Spirituality and Marketing. In this episode, I speak with Ray Gray of Gray and Gustavson as to how spirituality and marketing mix. G&G has been a business and brand incubator for over a decade, has partnered with Fortune 500 companies and entrepreneurs alike, working closely with principals and senior management successfully to create and extend and reinvent businesses and brands. Ray also teaches at the School of Practical Philosophy. In the spirit of what we're looking to both talk about and explore, um, and in respect to our practices, I know that for myself, beginning any kind of activity with um, a pause, moment of silence, invocation, I don't know if you do that or not, um, then I'd love it if you would kick us off that way. All right. Why don't I start with that right now? Okay. All right. I'm going to sing one of the traditional hymns that goes along with the praise of the masters, and you've heard this before. Yadvare nikila nilimpa parishad sidhim virate nisham shrimat shrilasitam jagat guru padam natvatmatriptingata Lokagyan payod patanduram, Shri Shankaram Sharmadam, Brahmananda Saraswatim Guruvaram, Tiyayami Jyotirmayam. Thank you. Thank you. Sounds familiar, but I can't say that I. I know what it means. When you see that ceremony of gratitude, when people are initiated and they're about to learn their mantra, 
that's one of the phrases from that ceremony. Great. Yeah, that's that's pretty. <laughs> a good voice too. So I guess we're um, we're here to talk about, I guess whatever we want to talk about, but marketing spirituality, the intersection of that, and uh, we just met a couple of days ago, and that was that was cool. I really I really enjoyed that. It was very cool, and I I also appreciated very much Ray the way that you tuned right in to establishing, if you like initial conditions. That is to say, you know, getting an understanding of what it is prior to trying to figure out where it needs to go. Excellent. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, um, just to a little more background, because I know we, we talked about it a little bit, but just for the sake of um, filling it out a little bit, we talked about how we started our business. Um, Gray and Gustafson, been around since 1989 in the world of brand marketing, venture development, image positioning, advertising, that whole kind of thing, working with really big, substantial companies, Levi's, Harley-Davidson, Food Network, Brooks Brothers, as well as working with celebrities, artists, startups, all sorts of things. One thing that's always been at the core of whatever we do is exactly what you just referenced, getting to the, the uh, initial conditions and understanding what the what is before we dive into how we're going to tell the world about it and you know as we walk through and i showed you there's a process that we go through to do that and i think that's essential and um, part of that process is understanding the goals and objectives and when one begins the conversation about marketing spirituality or if there is an an initiative or an effort to want to bring people to something that has a spiritual component to it. Um, it's rife with all sorts of pitfalls potentially, right? And, and one of the things that I asked you about, which um, maybe you can talk about again, is the challenge of attachment, right? Which is one of the core things I believe that um, any spiritual tr tradition ultimately confronts the transcendence of those things that we hold on to that really act as an inhibitor to greater presence and connection. And when the a particular form of spirituality encompasses um, a particular individual, uh, the attachment that can arise from that um, is, is what the question is and how you look at that and how you, um, how you feel about that and how you approach that. I think um, perhaps the way that I would make the first serve here um, would be to say there's three points. The first one is what is a guru properly? And we often use the word guru, but guru really has a very specific meaning. Its denotative meaning is the remover of darkness. Um, Gu is darkness in Sanskrit and Ru means uh, remove. Mm -hmm. And so something that removes darkness. And so then you could say, well, that's just a teacher, you know. But in fact, there's a connotative um, definition. And a guru is only a guru if that person has as their mission to make you self sufficient as fast as possible. Now, in what I've been teaching, I've always seen a dynamic between taking 
knowledge in its pure state, that is to say, in the way that it's been passed down for millennia, in this case, not just generations, but millennia, it's effective and powerful in its pure state, then how do you take that thing, and let's call that the purity of the teaching, and make it relevant to the need of the time? So the need of the time is massive right now, and you have the purity of the teaching. The dynamic between these two things is that if you are at such pains to keep the teaching so perfectly pure mm -hmm. that nobody ever hears about it, then it doesn't address the need of the time, and the teaching itself loses relevance mm. because knowledge is for action. And if there's knowledge, if it's not going into the action field, then that knowledge will retract back into the transcendence. Mm -hmm. So knowledge needs to be put into the action field. On the other hand, if the purity of the teaching is eroded through the process of dissemination of it, of getting the, the message out there. That would be worth talking a little bit about, um, the erosion of a message through its dissemination. Yeah. And um, if that's true, if that's real. Um, because is it, is it the dissemination or is it the disseminator that does the erosion? I think it, it, it's, it has to be the disseminator. Um, who make certain decisions about leaving out certain things or adding in certain things um, in aid of perhaps making it uh, more readily available to whatever the average consciousness state is out there of the recipients. Right. And so then, you know, you do have to make a call, and that is what is the conscious receptivity of those who could be hearing this and, you know, to what extent do you make a call about people's readiness to learn versus my readiness as a teacher to meet them where they are? Um, you know, the lifeguard has to swim out and get wet to rescue somebody. You can't call out instructions from the beach. Right. Uh, but then to what extent is the, the dynamic between these two forces, purity of teaching versus getting the message out, right. to what extent is, is the dynamic between these two driven by the ignorance of those who don't know, or to what extent is it driven by, to what percentage is it driven by the knowledge of the, of the one who has, who has the knowledge, the knower? And so then finding that sweet spot, finding uh, you know that place where if you like, and I use the word ignorance only in its literal meaning, not accusing anyone of anything, you know, where ignorance interacts with or transacts with knowledge, uh, where is that place? Has the knowledge been watered down to make it uh, more accessible to those who are relatively less informed? Or... Do we get those who are less informed to creep in the direction of being better informed in aid of getting the knowledge? And right. there's, there's that, that thing. And if you get that wrong, then either you end up delivering a totally watered-down message, which doesn't address the need of the time, or you don't get the knowledge out uh, because you're so concerned about maintaining its purity that you're not willing to even leave the Himalayas 
Um, you know, anybody who wants to learn it has to climb up into the Himalayas and learn from a master, which also doesn't address the need of the time. So not to be challenging mm. or difficult. Um, I, I like I, yeah. I like it. That that's what we're here for. Right, and, and to explore it, and it's for for. Um, so we're talking about, um, and I'll do this, and maybe it's a bad habit, but stepping back, what are we talking about here? We're talking about you know uh, putting out a, uh, a message to those who might be interested in some spirituality that can include churches, mm. synagogues, yoga centers, Kabbalah classes, you know, Scientology, whatever that might have some element to attract somebody's desire to get out of their own individual rut and connect to their higher self. Are we generally? Yeah. So when we say spirituality, I think that's what we're talking about. And then how do you put that message out there? And when that message is being put out there by a guru, the question was, what are the pitfalls there? And I appreciated your defining guru, remover of light, which mover is... Mover of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good catch. Um, so yeah, remover of darkness. Um, very apropos. So um, that's diving right into a particular type of spirituality, mm. right? And... Um, so staying still at a little higher level, 30,000 feet, if you will, at this level of um, um, uh, where, 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 where are the principal challenges that people experience their, um, um, where, where is the challenge to having a deeper spiritual life? And then there's these different methods to um, hasten or provide a good impulse to move beyond um, the difficulties they're experiencing. But what are what is the principal thing getting in the way? And I think we would agree, given our collective background, that it's the belief in something separate, some some identification um, with uh, something smaller, and forgetting the larger picture here. Or, um, so it's a, a belief in some duality. So. A, a, a guru then um, can help sh shed light, remove the darkness, um, and in that process, um, and now this is getting now drilling down a little bit further, um, the guru can then, the, the student who is being um, enlightened, the removal of darkness, um, can very easily, as with anything, form an attachment to the guru, just like we can become attached to any institution that we might be part of. So in, in that case, um, what you were talking about actually stimulated another question, which was um, the purity of a teaching um, and it's um, um, putting it forward in a way that's appropriate to the time. And so on an individual basis, it would seem to me, and I'd love to hear your thought on this, that um, there is no diluting of a message when you're with somebody on an individual basis. You're in their presence, knowing the need and responding accordingly without any thought or consideration of dilution. So that's just a pure exchange, no dilution, and the transmission of knowledge. However, it's when we now want to expand the, the reach, if you will, of the removing of darkness that um, now we start talking about um, a guru or an individual as part of the, that process. 
Um, so that was a little bit of a different thing. So back to the duality and the attachment that gets formed with a guru or an institution and your, your viewpoint on how to um, minimize that. I think that um, my own guru, Maharishi, did a very good job. He was, by any standard, an incredibly charismatic man uh, and filled the room. And it didn't matter what size the room was. I remember watching him once speak at the Royal Albert Hall that had 10,000 people in it. Cool. He filled the room. Um, but what comes out of the mouth of that guru is you're learning a technique. You'll be practicing a technique. And this technique that you do, you do it, you know, on your own. And 99% of all the meditation sessions you do will be done without anybody else around, probably in your bedroom or sitting in your lounge room or something. And the guru herself, himself, must really um, have a means whereby they're telling the student, I've given you knowledge, now you have to practice that knowledge, all right? You may have been inspired by what you've seen me do, how if I'm giving a lecture on this subject, somebody might, you know, throw a sticky question at me and you like the way I handled that and you want to be like that. If you want to be like that, you have to practice. And the guru also then has to get across whatever you see that you like here, I'll tell you how I got it. I got it by practicing a technique and I've taught you that technique. So this is not about, and the guru has to get that message across, it's not about you imitating me. Um, and it's not about you you know, you can you can enjoy my presence if you like, but if you really want to show me that you got the message, you have to really adopt this idea that yeah. you're you're practicing what I've taught you, yeah. not trying to be like me. And then, you know, there's um reinforcement of that message all through that guru's career. And in my own case, my teacher basically on a particular day, some twenty years before he passed away, uh, said to me, you know, you don't need to see me anymore. Right. Um, you know, you yeah. check inside yourself and, you know, if you really got the message and you've said that you have, then you don't come back here. Right. In fact, in fact, you know, as the, the work progresses, disciple and master, yeah. um, the differences melt away. Yeah. And the unity that we all come from and share um, becomes more self-evident. Yes. I had an opportunity. He, he um, you know, when I, I, he sprung all this on me. Uh, it was completely unexpected. I only wanted, I was leaving India and I wanted to go back home, but I wanted to ask him when I should see him next. Mm -hmm. And to paraphrase it and make it a shorter story, um, he basically said, what would you want to see me for? How long have you been coming? Did you get it? Yes, I got it. Good. Well, then you know that it's not about this pointing at his body. Right. It's not about this. And I said, yes, but I might like to just come back and see you and check on certain things and all that. He said, I thought you said you got it. Right. And if you really got it, then what are these questions for? You know, um, I've taught you what the source is and it's not here. 
Beautiful. He pointed at me and he said, it's there. Um, now, I think when I go back in my mental history, he probably tried that on me 10 years before that. But I was too juvenile in my learning to actually either want to understand it or get the fact that he was offering me an opportunity to graduate. And another thing which he drove in, and uh, and I'll stop there because I don't want to take up too much time just with my own voice, um, was that people would say to him, um, Maharishi, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to teach because I can't teach as well as you can. And if only I could keep coming back here and hearing you lecture and lecture and lecture for year after year. And he said, that's not how I learned. Uh, my master, he referred to his master as Gurudev, taught me the techniques that I've taught you. I practiced those techniques, and what taught me was teaching it to people who'd never heard it. That's what makes you a master. So you take the knowledge and you teach it to people who've never heard it. It's very empowering. Those students make you into a master. Right. You cannot be made a master by a master. And so go and teach, go right and teach. Yeah. It was just like keep teaching, keep teaching, keep teaching. Right. Um, now, each generation of teachers needs to get that message and not get in their head about I'm the guru now. It's, sure. you know, that... The real guru, in a way, is the students. A, a lighthouse, a beacon, right. uh, is only valuable if there's darkness surrounding it. Yeah, and and this idea of, uh, from the school that I come from and have been exposed to, whatever is in front of you, um, however hateful or holy, broomstick or person, that's your teacher. That's right. So whatever's in front of you is your teacher. And um, so... That expands the notion of what guru is even. That's right. And and so then therein lies um, some of the inbuilt elements of maintaining fundamental integrity as a guru. You know, what your responsibility is. Um, if you begin allowing people to see you as a miracle performer or as somebody who has supernatural powers, um, then that means that and if you allow that, then you're letting them have the view that they can never be like you. Sure. Well, there's a division. There's a separateness. There's That's a separation. Right. And if you allow them to celebrate that. So I get people all the time walking up to me in meetings at the end of a meeting saying, you were talking exactly to me. I know you, you know, 500 people in the room. I know you were talking exactly to me, weren't you? You knew I needed to hear that. And I just say straight out, nothing of the sort. Uh, everyone in this room got benefit from what I said. If you derive specific benefit from it, that's good. Uh, you can act on it, but you and I don't have this kind of mysterious, secret little thing going on where I know exactly what you need and I said it. So let's clear that up right now. Now, in, in teacher training, I train the would teachers. Fair, would it be fair to have told that student that whatever they're tapping into is the same thing you're tapping into. Exactly. And it's this universal knowledge that's, that's, right. trans that's transpiring. In other words, you know, if you had an aha moment, believe me, when I was giving the talk just now, I also had an aha moment. But it wasn't driven by you individually in communication with me individually. There's 500 people in this room. And this is what is needed. This is the need of the time. Right. Like everyone else in the room, 
you got the benefit of this collective cognition that took place. I'm just a loudspeaker. So um, one of the reasons uh, why I ask about the guru and the attachment to that, it's probably a projection of my own thoughts and ideas around that, and probably one of the reasons I got attracted to a school. Yeah. A school of philosophy. It's called the School of Practical Philosophy, and I've gone there since 1987 or whatever it was, 89. And um, and I happened to, uh, at first, the word philosophy is a bit academic, so it turns you off because I don't want to compare Heidegger to this or that. But then it quickly became apparent that the title of school being practical really was that because um, these big ideas were immediately put into practice, and it meant to... Uh, immediately connect one to the present and begin the unfolding unfoldment of a journey yeah. with a good impulse. And so I've been a participant for quite some time now. I teach an introductory course, and um, and as we're talking, and it's and I've I've been involved in the school's marketing in one fashion or another over the years, and now we're talking about this um, idea of marketing spirituality and. And what does that look like? And what are the pitfalls of that? And what are the challenges of that? And um, it's an interesting topic. I think it's the most fascinating topic yeah, of all. <laughs> it's really, you know, I was at a conference not too long ago called the Nantucket Project. And that was out in Nantucket, go figure. And there was um, a woman speaking, interviewing uh, Monica Lewinsky. And her name was Krista Tippett. And she has a radio show called On Being. You, I don't know if you've heard of that. I haven't. Not. Oh, it's fantastic. And she interviews Dalai Lama, amongst many others, with this idea of expressing um, the common humanity amongst uh, that we all share and coming at it in a very nuanced way. And one of the things being in the marketing business, you know, not only and in, in, in a path of spirituality, uh, I hate saying that because it feels like canned, yeah. but you know, whatever. It's, it's hard to come up with another word. Right. Uh, presence. I have a friend who calls it the growers club, you know, but yeah. in any event, so I went up to her because I'm in the business I'm in just to acknowledge that I've, I'm a fan of hers and I thought she did really good in, in a difficult interview and um, just wanted to chat with her. So we chat a little bit and she had told me a little bit about her business um, and we talked about marketing and the challenge of someone that's fairly renowned in that space, um, not as a guru or as a school, but as somebody wanting to bring an enlightened message to the larger public, um, the challenge associated with promoting something like that. She had gone to a PR company and they quite weren't getting it. And um, In any event, uh, so it's whether it's a guru, it's a school, it's some other thing, and I think there are challenges with it. And I think... um, Deepak Chopra happened to have been there as well. So, you know, personality, identification, all these kinds of things come into it. Um, And you're right, there's never been a bigger need, right? People are really hungry for it. Um, The conditions in the marketplace are moving so quickly in society and economics. and, um, And so there's a real hunger for connection and authenticity um, and insight. And, um, and I think just because there's, um, uh, not just because, there, there is a mass of humanity and there's all sorts of ways to come to uh, a spiritual message. And so my contention is most of them are coming from a good place. 
um, and there's a lot of opportunity to put one's message out there. Um, but you have to know what your goal is, whether it's a school or it's a radio show or it's a guru. You have to know why you're doing what you're doing, what's the purpose of it. And I think it's mining that conversation that helps um, start to create a foundation, if you will, for what can be um, how you ultimately go out there and share whatever you have to offer with a broader audience, recognizing it's not going to necessarily be a message that speaks to everybody, but there's going to be some people that are attracted to the to what you uniquely have to offer. So, it, I, but I do believe it begins with that core um, understanding of why you're doing what you're doing, what's your goal, you know. When we do that as a business and we're meeting with companies and I showed you some in my office of this, you have to have a landscape of considerations that you're analyzing and looking at it very closely. The larger marketplace, the particular industry, the company and its goals and objectives, um, what they are and represent from a perception perspective to the consumer. Well, those same things relate to you or me or a school that's interested in promoting itself. Um, so can you speak about the goal and what it is that you're looking and hoping to accomplish when you talk about um, expanding your reach and message? I um, This is one of it, those now-it-can-be-told stories. I had an opportunity years ago to meet Stephen Jobs, and he was the one who told me how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> Um, and uh, for the rest of the world, that's Stephen Jobs of Apple. And I began thinking about what he was to the world with reference to these products that almost everybody has either in their pocket or at home. And, you know, I acknowledge that there are people who don't like Apple products, you know, and do Samsung or something instead. But let's just for the moment look at this worldwide phenomenon Whenever Stephen Jobs said, you know, in his big annual, you know, uh, meet company meetings and they were launching and announcing things, uh, even though it was a thing that you were going to buy, hopefully, and stick in your pocket, it was a product, it was a thing, think of that as being a technique, you know, yet there was this guy who was undeniably charismatic. Um, the world believed in him. Um, you know, when it became known that he wasn't well, the share value and, you know, the, the, the change in the whole perception and, you know, all the question about will Apple ever be the same? Uh, I don't know if Apple, how well Apple's done without him. Uh, maybe they've done well. Maybe they, maybe there's some shift occurring. I don't know. I use that as, you know, there's always going to be somebody who is the personification of the message even though the call to action is not go and worship Stephen, but the call to action is get a phone and stick it in your pocket and use it and see how great it is or open up our computer and watch how it just immediately switches on and works. And uh, so I'm just thinking that with reference to the goal, um, I think that it would be true to say that uh, in the world today, and I'm you know trying not to self-aggrandize, but having declared that, I may be one of the better spokespersons for the body of ancient knowledge that came from an ancient tradition in India and the way in which 
it has been used by millions of people worldwide. Um, and the fascination of the scientific community and its palpable effects, um, the word of mouth spread of it, which is that, you know, thousands of people all have 10 friends each and they practice the technique and it's amazing. But then ultimately there's always going to be a question um, because it's, I believe, human nature. No matter how much you try to avoid being the guy, there's always going to be somebody who's supposed to be the icon of whatever this is, if you like, the Stephen Jobs of Apple. Um, and, you know, uh, I think then looking at that inevitability that the public are going to look for a person, if we can't offer them a person, if all we're doing is saying, look, it's just a product, it's a technique, it's a generic thing, um, there's nobody in particular who you need to pin this on. It's just a thing. It goes against human nature because humans want to know who's behind it, who brought it to the state that it's in, who's the most articulate spokesperson on the subject of it and so on. They want to know that. And so seeing as that's going to be a reality anyway, why not package that and offer it? And then if that voice is saying, now, you know, you like what you've heard, you like what, you like what you've seen, you like all of this, you like the way I've put things, you know, um, I can't be who I am except by virtue of what it is you can learn from me or any one of my colleagues. And now go and learn that. And I think that if that speeds up the process of people embracing what's valuable, then it may as well be offered and acknowledged. Um, I'll say one more thing, and then I know I can see you you put some flags in, and I want to let you pull those out. Just the other day... Just as a note, there was nothing physical that I did, I, but I think you're just picking up yeah. on some questions, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, um, the uh, interesting thing, the other day I was interviewing and was being interviewed by, um, there was a, a, a young woman who is absolutely against gurus. Uh, her thing is that the day of the guru is gone. We don't need gurus anymore. I asked her to detail her message. And her message was, you know, I'm going out to the world and telling the world that the day of the guru is over and that, you know, now we have to, and she particularly works with women, we have to begin drawing from the feminine power of the earth. And my question for her, which wasn't facetious, was simply, well, you're the guru of the anti-guru movement. Um, you know, now that you're the voice saying, don't do gurus anymore, if people listen to you, then suddenly you've become a guru. <laughs> she didn't like it. Right. Uh, but right. it's a fact. You know, it's impossible to be a spokesperson for any new idea right. without the public flocking around that and saying, this is the person who has it right. Sure. So I'll dive in here. Um, so in asking what the goal is behind your life's activity, um, I didn't quite pick up on the answer. What, what I got was uh, a jumping ahead to some inevitable conclusion about... Um, uh, the necessity to have a personality behind some body of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, that's a hypothesis that, given my experience with a school, mm. doesn't necessarily hold true, that it has to have a person behind it in order for it to be successful or interesting or um, compelling, right? And to be valuable and put something out there. So I don't know if I agree with that, um, jumping ahead to that conclusion and then then working your way back forward, then therefore you need to package a person. Um, so I don't know if you want to address that. Yeah, the goal would be um, whatever it is that can be done to make it easy for as many people as possible without watering down the techniques, without watering down the purity of the teaching, to embrace it, uh, to interact with it. Um, and, you know, the, the uh, I see the urgency of that, of solving that problem is massive. So to put forward, the goal is to put forward the teaching. That's right. So then that begs the question, so the essence of the teaching, what is that then? Yeah, the essence of the teaching would be um, that contact, conscious contact with that inner quiet place inside you has all the answers for you. Excellent. Um, and, you know, so then if we can show you how to get that done, all the rest of it's detail. Totally agree. Totally agree. So uh, um, providing a method through an ancient teaching to provide access to one's innate um, wisdom, yep. capability, um, and that's the goal. Yep beautiful. And there's a particular, just like um, other faiths and traditions may have um, their, um, and I can't speak about them in particular terms, so I'm not going to go there, but they're ultimately looking to create a connection with some higher power. Right. And in that connection, there is that experience of that still place, yeah. that unity. Yeah. Um, and they'll offer their path, Their it'll have its color and its um, method and techniques and so forth. Um, well, so that was very helpful. Um, that's the goal. And now to the second part where you had gone to originally, which yeah. was um, the inevitability of it needing to be a person that gets packaged because people, I don't know, if, do you still feel that or do you? Um, I think that... Um, why can't it be as an example? I'm sorry. Um um, weight acknowledge center just and then leave it at that and then be the spokesperson for that I think it's um, like you're a Democrat who's the leader of the Democratic Party right you're a Republican who's the leader of the Republican Party so does it require a leader of all Waydonic thought and movement does the does Waydonic thought am I saying it right Waydantic you know in India that's exactly how they pronounce it we, it's spelled with a V, but right. in India that's pronounced as a W. But in the West, we tend to say Vedic or Vedantic Got just it. because otherwise people get confused. Well, we know what we're talking yeah, about. we know what we're talking about. So um, if we have a, a, call it an institution, a business, a brand, right, does it um, necessitate there being a leader that's at the front of it in, in your way of thinking? Um, if the Could it be the packaging of a business uh, or of an institution or an academy or a school or, and, and its ethos and its philosophy is what's put forward. I think that it's going to depend on 
how deep people want to dig. So if they're simply exposed to a methodology and that's provided and it's in a certain way kind of genericized so that they can just get access to it and there's no particular face except whoever they meet in the process of whoever recommended it or whoever referred them or you know whoever provided them with the knowledge. And then as they dig a little deeper, because they're curious about where it came from, they end up finding about these people, finding out about these people, who were the people who brought it, you know. And so, in school of practical philosophy, you know, you have Gurudev, Swami Brahmananda Saraswati, who taught Maharishi, and then he also trained his disciple Swami Shantanand Saraswati, then Doctor Rolls, who embraced that knowledge there at that point, and then it came down to Lindsay. Um, Leon McLaren. Le- Leon, Leon, I'm sorry. Leon McLaren. And then from Leon it came, you know, and this is it. So then I think that when in, when there is worthy inquiry for who are the people, um, the, the you know, it's going to, um, it's, it's going to necessarily be that if you look deeply enough, you're going to find somebody. And... If you don't find somebody, then that's going to seem a bit fishy too. Like, right. it had to be brought here by somebody. Um, even if it's a school that offers a technique and a methodology, ultimately human beings are going to be interfacing with human beings. Yeah. And human beings are fascinated by human beings. Right. You know, especially in the spirituality world, if the thing that we are being encouraged to practice is in fact as good as we suspect it may be from our own experience, we're having certain experiences. Is there an icon somewhere who's been practicing it for years? Is there somebody who is the embodiment of whatever that thing can do? I want inspiration about what I could possibly end up being like. Right. Um, And I think it's human nature to want to start zeroing in. And I think if that if that kind of curiosity appears, but we just keep batting the ball away and say, wrong question. Right. You know, even the person who says that's not the right question to ask is going to end up being considered to be a guru. Sure. So um, without getting into a competition of philosophy school versus guru yeah. uh, or school versus guru, forget, um, I can speak from my experience where um, if we're going to put out a name on the traditions that were um, each upholding or wanting to pursue or reflecting, however we talk about it, non-dualism would be one way of talking about it. Mm -hmm. And if we look throughout the ages, um, the way Dantic thought is not the only school that would embrace non-dualism. So a school has then the opportunity to not necessarily just have a guru, but can embrace the teachings of Emerson and the transcendentalist. Yeah. Can look at Platonic thought, Socrates, which also ultimately speaks in a non-dualistic yeah. way. You can even incorporate, you know, middle mid um, Renaissance scholars like Marcello Ficino. You can bring in Shakespeare. Um, so it broadens out that um, offering. Yeah. And so there's a lot there for a student to pursue and yes, if there's a desire to go further, then you do have that lineage available. Right. Um, 
but that's that's what that is. Yeah. And I'm not here to speak on behalf of the school, but just as an individual uh, who, with my life experience, and also an individual with an experience in marketing, and now that we're we're talking about um, Tom Knowles mm. and the the opportunity in front of you, and really the opportunity um, in society as a whole, um, given the hunger we talked about for deeper connection and access to the stillness, this universal stillness that's available to everybody all the time, but seems to be hidden. Yeah. And, um, and you're, um, offer techniques to help, uh, people gain access to that. And so then the conversation is, um, we talked about the goal, right? Yeah. And it's to offer this, um, and to make it accessible to as many people as possible. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, the techniques and what makes them work? Um, and if you will, what your program is? Yeah. Is that fair? Is that a fair way to talk about it? Absolutely. So, um, and some of this will be familiar to you uh, because there are, you know, there are pa- parallels. Sure. Um, I think school of practical philosophy and Vedic meditation, as I phrase it, uh, run parallel to each other. Um, a simple mental technique. Um, is offered. Uh, there's an introductory lecture in which we talk about what that technique is. When I say we, me, and the 150 people who I've trained to do this, um, members of the public may have heard about it from word of mouth. That's the largest percentage. Um, some may have responded to other things. They've heard a podcast or a radio show or something, but upwards of 90% come because they have friends who've tried it and the friends are saying, you should hear about this thing. And they're curious. They will hear over a 90-minute or hour-long talk, this is what the technique is, this is what it's known to do, this is what people say about it, here's what some science some science on it has said. Um, here's how you learn it. Come tomorrow, or if you're there for... If you're in the place where the teaching is going to happen every week, uh, you will come and you'll bring a few flowers and a fruit, some fruits and a white handkerchief. And for three minutes, the teacher will recite a long list of names of all the masters who came before him by way of reminding himself that this is a, uh, a, a something that's come down for thousands of years. This is the teacher making a troth to that tradition that I won't change the teaching. I'll teach you with fundamental integrity. And for you as the consumer, uh, it is the imprimatur of authenticity. You'll be learning an individualized mantra or a sound, a meaningless word, a word that has no intended meaning, let's put it that way. It has no intended meaning. It works on the level of its vibratory power. When you think the sound effortlessly, the mind will find that charming and it will follow that. The sound will get more and more charming as it gets more and more subtle the sound may disappear. When it does, the mind will be left for a moment in a state where there's no mantra, no thought, just being. In a new meditator, it doesn't last very long. The first thought they have is, here I am, but they're not there anymore. Now they're thinking, here I am. So then learning how to employ that technique. Uh, there'll be 90 minutes of instruction starting tomorrow, um, if you want to take opportunity of starting tomorrow. And, you know, and you'll learn your individualized mantra and methodology for using it. 
then you'll need to come back on each of four, uh, each of the next three consecutive days for about 90 minutes each day. You'll do some practice at home. You'll do some practice with the teacher every day. And by the end of four days, you'll have learned enough that you can have a modicum of self-sufficiency in practicing at home and seeing the benefits. Then we recommend that you come in for regular, you know, follow-up meetings, um, and you have uh, about once a month, once a week for about a month, and then after that about once a month for a year. Come and get checked. Make sure your technique is fine-tuned. Make sure you're getting the benefits. You may have as much or as little to do with that follow-up as you care to. Most people find it very helpful. Um, here are the course fees. It's a sliding scale. If you earn more, you pay more. If you earn less, you pay less. You're going to choose which of those fees you pay using your integrity. Um, nobody's going to look at your tax records or anything. You just, you'll let us know. That's a one-off payment that covers you not just for your initial instruction, but you can come back for a lifetime of follow-up, not just from the person who taught you, but from anybody anywhere in the world who's a teacher of this. You can just show up and attend their meetings. You can take refresher courses free of charge and so on and so forth. And so then building on that, um, tens of thousands of people have taken us up on it. Mm. And in my own case, some 40,000, 45 or so thousand, I think we passed 44,000 last year sometime, uh, that I've taught uh, of the people who I've trained to be teachers of this, uh, about 150 have been trained and are out there offering this weekly or once every two weeks. Some of them teach once every month. Mm -hmm. Some of them have other jobs. Um, there are actors, there are people who are business people, there are lawyers and so on, but they take time off and teach this. Others are attempt to be absolutely full-time. They offer a course, at least one course every week, and it's a full-time profession for them. Gotcha. Uh, those people whom I've trained are financially independent of me. Um, they do have to pay a course fee to take the training. Um, and then at the end of the three months of training, there's a, about a year of preliminary work they do at home, then they go away to India with me. Uh, there they uh, train with me in an intensive program for 100 days. And then at the end of that 100 days, when I've when they've met all my tests, I take them to the Shankaracharya, who meets them, performs a ceremony, and inducts them into the tradition. Um, Shankaracharya being, for those who don't know, um, the king of the yogis, the master, the preeminent master of all the masters of North India, the Shankaracharya of Jyotramath. So then uh, the, the, they come away with not just having been trained to my standard, but having met the approval of of the, the lineage. The lineage. Right. When they go back to the world, they're offering a methodology. They're not offering themselves as a guru per se. However, um, in effect, because it's impossible to teach something that has such an amazing effect without people suddenly saying, you've got to get in there and see Emily or you've got to get in there and see Jeff or something. It's just human nature that those teachers get built up a bit by the people who learn from them. Right. And partly that's what, you know, the word of mouth is. And somebody might say, I do this technique. And then somebody else is going to say, yeah, but who teaches it? Oh, you come in and see, 
you know, there's an introductory lecture sure. being given. What's the measure of the technique? Like how long and how frequently? Uh, I'm sorry. They practice uh, for 20 minutes in the morning, sometime before the day begins, before breakfast preferably, and about 20 minutes um, before dinner, you know, sometime late afternoon, early evening, about 20 minutes. Gotcha. So there's there's a lot there to mine, to discover, to learn about um, that can provide great fuel, if you will, and insight um, to help form what would be a foundation of um, a message. Yeah. Right. And then once you have that ethos, philosophy clearly articulated, codified, not to say that it wasn't clear, yeah. but to take it um, and build upon that. Exactly. Um, once that is done, um, then you can start to explore how you disseminate that, how you, you know, tell the world, so to speak. Um, so we won't necessarily get into that now, that, but that is a fun conversation. Yeah. That's the core of what we do as a business yeah. um, for both big companies and little companies and startups. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about was the competitive landscape. So, you know, we, we both know about um, each other, yeah. but what are the other... Um, uh, what's the difference? I, I that's a good way into it between yourself and others who offer a mantra-based meditation. Um, is there a difference? And do you have insight or? Yeah, I think that the the uh, the biggest um, competitor in the market would be Transcendental Meditation or TM, um, of which I was a part for many years and no longer am. Um, they offer a very similar approach. However, you know, their branding of it uh, prohibits me from saying they're identical. Sure. Uh, because, you know, they have a service that's a trademark service. Um, in the Transcendental Meditation organization, um, there has been an attempt uh, ever since the passing of Maharishi uh, to genericize. And, you know, to the point that there's a dress code Teachers all wear roughly the same kind of clothes, um, uh, you know, business attire, sure, you know, suits and ties and things, and um, so that when the public go there, they're experiencing an institution. That you know, the message is that although the person who teaches you initially and gives you your mantra will be the same teacher who's there every day for the next three days for the four-day course of instruction, um, that teachers don't matter. It doesn't matter who the teacher is. All teachers are the same, that all teachers teach exactly the same thing. They all say exactly the same words. And there's an attempt to, uh, to give that genericization by using a lot of audiovisual aids, uh, particularly uh, videotapes or video CDs or DVDs, I guess, that were uh, recorded of Maharishi himself teaching in the past. So then, you know, you'll you'll go and learn. And instead of the teacher building any charisma with his students, his or her students, there'll be the playing of a video. You know, here's Maharishi teaching it. Um, and we in Vedic meditation, as we call my group, um, there's uh, we we don't use those audiovisual aids, uh, not just because, uh, uh, not for any particular proprietary reason, except that 
just that. Um, I do believe that it's important for students, if they're going to have somebody who's their teacher, to be able to ask that person their question. You can't ask a question of a 1978 video of Maharishi. Um, I think that some of the pitfalls that the Transcendental Meditation movement, if you like, or organization is facing is that they do have a guru structure, but it's a guru who's no, no longer alive. Um, there is debate about who the successor was, um, and nobody really quite knows the answer to that, except that there are these video recordings. So the living tradition is a point of difference. Yeah. Um, are there other? That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. Um, and that keeps it alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. To deal with an evolving, changing market, mm-hmm. uh, humanities, um, challenges, and so forth. So um, a lineage you can go back to yes. and ask questions and get your own clarifications to bring back. Yeah. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, although it does put a, I'd like to hear if there's other competitive mantra-based meditations. But before that, um, they have been successful in putting forward a meditation that's not guru-oriented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. However, I would disagree in that um, when you look at their website... Every page has a picture of Maharishi. Every page has an opportunity to view a video of Maharishi. And so Maharishi is still the guru. It's just that he's not physically locatable in a body anymore. You can't go and see him in New York or in Chicago or something. Um, you know, there is still an ultimate authority of the method. And it's made very clear that he's it. Right. Um, What's the benefit of having an authority? What, what does that... Um... What does that offer to a disciple or a student um, or subscriber or whatever? I think there's a fundamental human need to uh, have a pope if you're a Catholic or to have Hillary if you're a Democrat (laughs) or to have, you know, there's a person uh, who is the interface between. And I think of it as, you know, if you look at an hourglass, uh, on one side of the hourglass, you have a wide uh, area, and you, let's think of that as the relative world with all the people in it. And then the hourglass narrows down to its hips, where it's very narrow. And then the hourglass spreads out. Again, there's another catchment at the other side. So you have on one side, there's the universe. And here's the universe channeling through a point. And from that point, it's channeling out to the world. And then the world has certain questions it wants to ask. And that goes back to that point that then gets it from the universe and all that. Now, the fact is that every individual is that hourglass. And it's the job of any teacher to teach the individual that's what you are. But the individuals, I think, do want to see, yeah, but did it work on you? Right. You know, who did it work so on? So my understanding, there's like levels of authority. So yeah. you have the, the Shruti, the um, Shastra, right? You have the written word of the Upanishads, then you have the guru, and then you have your own experience. Yeah, yeah. And then the whole idea of that is that my own experience is verified and validated by stuff that 
has been experienced by other human beings since time immemorial. And so then what the authority, I think, does is it provides a comparison point. It gives you an idea of where I am. You know, where am I in this whole thing? Um, you know, so I practice meditation. I'm having these experiences. But what is the measure of where I'm getting with it? And I do believe it's human nature that to then try to identify ind individuals who've been doing it longer than me. People who've been doing it for many years, and what are they like? Because I'm going to look at them and make a decision about where this is taking me. And, and I think that no matter how much you try to obscure those people, if you were to try to do that, it would still, you know, people would still say, even if they had to whisper it, they'd say, so-and-so's, you know, that's right. the one who's been doing it for 20 years sitting over there. Um, and, uh, and so then... Um, so that's the value of a living tradition and the ability to um, um, not allow it to get ossified or static, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, so you were going to say or draw reference to other yeah. people who offer mantra-based meditations, and what's that playing field look like? I think there, uh, there are relatively few who uh, come out to the world and say, uh, you know, I think there's the School of Practical Philosophy, um, there's TM, and there's us. And, you know, um, if, if we're talking about an eyes-closed method where you sit down and you think a mantra and that mantra takes you beyond thought and that whole scene... Then, uh, but if you talk about the electronic world, there is a proliferation of apps where um, anything from choose your own mantra, here's 15 or 20, to uh, just use this one, this is a good one, you know. Um, and then you have a variety of voices who are the offerers of these methodologies through apps talking people through it. You know, you put on your headphones or you turn on your speakers at home and so what's wrong with that what's what's the downside of that for somebody who is you know struggling in their life and looking for some connection to that stillness and i'd i'd like to say where its limitations are because okay. um, i don't think it's wrong in any sense um th that um th the the degree of individual personal interaction which I think is extremely valuable when you're learning something. For example, today I was teaching a couple, an elderly couple, and right away at the end of their meditation, the woman said, you know, I'm getting these everyday thoughts, and how do I get rid of that? And, you know, I was made, able immediately to answer and say, you know, the point is, you know, if those everyday thoughts are coming, it's not that they're coming it's the level at which you're experiencing them. Did you notice that when those everyday thoughts came, that you were in a kind of a charmed state while you were thinking them? She said, yes, I was. I found the process fascinating. And I said, that's just it. You were at a level, a quieter level, where even an everyday shopping list thought was fascinating to the mind. And your mind had liberty to just experience that for as long as it wanted to until you realized consciously that you were meditating and that, you know, you weren't using the, 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 the mantra, the technique. So you're able now to come back to that. And then that's going to take you to the next deeper level. Now, to get that kind of fleshing out of detail, 
in a recorded, a pre-recorded thing um, to cover every possible experience in advance and have everyone listen to that and say, well, okay, in case this question comes up, in case that experience comes. It's not a substitute. It's, no. It's, it's, it's a good maybe initial and, and And that really gets to your question, which is I think that if what we're looking at is breaking down the barrier that why would I sit in a chair and close my eyes and do nothing? Um, for people to have a taste, uh, I think apps are very good for that. Um, and I think they are doing a huge service to humanity because what they're doing is they are expanding the, uh, the wide end of the basket into which hundreds of thousands of people are going in and saying, yeah, I do a kind of meditation. I bought an app and I close my eyes. I probably do it three or four times a week. I get a certain benefit. But the next question they're going to have is, is there something deeper than this? And I think that we're down there inside a little more focused area in that basket saying, yeah, come come this way. So um, this was something we didn't quite touch on, although a little bit. Um, the benefits of meditation is clearly, you know, this access to some native, innate um, stillness, presence, knowledge, um, which seems like it would be enough, right? Uh, but beyond that, the benefits of meditating, um, as you would share it, what, what would, how would you express that? What would you say? Um, ultimately, it's going to be that um, I, the individual, actually am not just connected to that giant oceanic consciousness. I am the oceanic consciousness behaving as a wave. So a wave on the ocean that is curved ocean, it's not an individual thing that's connected to the ocean. It actually is the ocean curving. Uh, what does that mean? It just means that... It's a big idea. Yeah. My individuality is an expression of the universe. That's the experience that can be captured if we continue practicing every day. And you'll begin to see that, that the desires that spontaneously bubble up in my mind as I'm evolving, not somebody who doesn't meditate and sitting on a street corner wanting a fix with heroin or something, but somebody who is deeply into this uh, path of exploration of their inner essence and what that is, they begin to discover that their own desires can be trusted because when the universe wants something done, it will cause a desire to appear in an individual. And that individual carrying out that activity that appears on the surface just to be an individual desire will actually be demonstrated as having served a vast variety of purposes which otherwise, otherwise couldn't be done. And it begins to dawn on you, I am the universe, not my little individual self with a birth date and my body is the universe, not that. But that, that my baseline is not just connected to the universe, it actually, in a fundamental way, is the yes. universe. That's so, where it's headed. So maybe this is just my, um, you know, an um, experience or ignorance about it, but you mentioned desires arising. Yeah. And um, somehow those being at service to a larger thing. Yeah. Um, it would seem to me like the, 
you know, you often see, and this may seem tangential, a guru who just, um, ascetic, right? Um, what are their names? The ones that just sit on the... Sannyasis or sadhus, right. yeah. They don't do anything, right? Um, until somebody comes. Yeah. Right? So the desires, a desirelessness and just being at service would be the aspirational thing. And the desires that do arise, they're the remnants of ahankara, that ego yeah. side of things. Yeah. And if that is a correct understanding, then when those desires do arise, um, how is it that they are in service of humanity? Maybe I'm just not understanding the language. It's, um, it's a very interesting thing. I, years ago, I met the abbot of the uh, Thai Buddhist uh, church or faith in Thailand. Uh, I wanted to rent one of his retreat facilities to run one of my programs. It was in the 1980s. And um, I, he surprised me first by being, uh, though dressed like an ascetic Buddhist monk with robes and all of that shaved head, and he was a very old man. He was already in his 80s at that time. When he spoke, he spoke with a beautiful, clipped, polished Oxford accent um, because he'd studied there. Um, and he had said to me, uh, you know, tell me what you're teaching and what do you teach with regard to desire? And I said to him that uh, there's a realization that occurs at a certain heightened consciousness state that my desires are not authored by me. My desires are authored by the universe. And he said, well, we teach the opposite. We teach, the Buddha taught that, that desire is the basis of suffering. And I said, where did he teach it? And he said, called out to his staff, I'm shortening the story, but bring the Shastras. And there he showed me, it was all written in Pali. And I'm a Sanskrit scholar, so I can read Sanskrit, but I can't read Pali, which is one of the first children of Sanskrit. But through one means and another, we translated word by word. And what the text actually said was, authorship of desire is the basis of suffering. Now that word authorship. Does that mean claim? If I lay claim to it. If I decide, if I decide that my individuality is the source of this desire and that my individuality is going to be aggrandized somehow by fulfilling the desire, that's going to cause suffering. If on the other hand, I'm an innocent witness of a phenomenon of a desire appearing and I allow myself to move in the direction of that. Can we call that desire? Then it's not going to be desire as we no normally know it. Doesn't it seem like that would be desire. That would just be the thing in front of you to be doing. Exactly. It doesn't. The word desire wouldn't really fit into that. The word that the word that's used, if we translate into English uh, for it, is it would translate as the word charm. It a charming thought. A thought become charming to walk over there, and without questioning Some it, pull is a pull. There's a spontaneous impulse to move. And we begin to trust that and move with that. You move with that, and then the intellect is no longer driving the phenomenon saying, okay, what's the pros and cons list of moving or not moving? Yeah. Uh, the individual just spontaneously moves. One of the uh, interesting things is in, during Krishna's many teaching um, moments uh, in the ancient Vedic uh, stories of Krishna, he's asked... What are the hallmarks of somebody who's enlightened? And one of the answers he gives, amongst many others, is um, 
a man who's gone beyond, gone beyond desires and yet finds himself desiring. Now, that's a very interesting thing. In other words, no benefit can be brought to this person by fulfilling a desire, and yet a desire is still coming. But he doesn't, he's not attached to its outcome because he doesn't experience himself as the author of it. Right. And so then if I decide that I'm the author of the desire, I'm going to somehow get better or I'm going to have an experience that's going to yeah. make me better. If you have already that baseline of I and the universe are one, then any thought that appears that says move over there or go over here or whatever is my individuality being a channel for the universe. Right. And so when that experience, and that's the ultimate experience really, sure. is that... It's like active meditation. Yeah. It's like life as meditation. It's just you're living it in the waking state. Right. Um, and so then at that point, we one has reached the pinnacle of where meditation can take you is that there is no more the universe and me. There's no more this individuality thing. And getting back to um, you know what could be offered in a school setting, um, you were talking about the Platonic and the uh, other uh, religious and philosophical bases. You know the Rabbi from Nazareth, um, you know prior to his crucifixion, had said on several occasions, "I and the Father are one." You know, which was extremely annoying to the religious purveyors of the time and to the Romans. Um, this idea that there is oneness with your source. You know, I'm one with the source. Absolutely. And, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And, you know, somehow everybody's missed all of that because it's very distracting to see his body nailed to a cross. Um, but Well, I don't know if they've missed it. They've interpreted it in a different way. Exactly. And uh, and so then, um, you know, the the message is obscured by other considerations. And uh, from the Vedic point of view, that ultimately is the message. You know, I and the Father are one, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And this becomes, you know, the, the way in which you can, you can teach where, you know, I, I'm having this experience inside myself when I meditate. And wow, he said something like that. And that person said something like that. And there are all these you know, echoes throughout history of people right. referring to these experiences, um, Thoreau, Emerson, Whitman, and others, you know, and it's it's everywhere. Shakespeare, as you said, it's everywhere. Um, wow, you know, I'm not alone. Absolutely. And there's nothing that makes a human being happy more than shared experience. Excellent. So this is, this is good, and I don't know if we wanted to go here or not, but... Um desire kind of stimulated for me this this question of um, we're not the sannyasins, we're not monks going off in a cave, we're here in the world, right? We're in a studio in Flatiron area. You go on a plane, I go to work, I go to home, I have family. We have um, desires that are attendant to our, whether you want to call it householder status or being in the world versus a recluse, spiritual recluse, and, and the various challenges that come with that, which are innumerable, right? Um, but maybe at a higher level, one of those key challenges, aside from desire, which we just spent a little time on, which was great, it was good to hear that, um, is the world of ambition, right? And um, the doingness, and who's doing the doing, 
versus the serving. And um, I know that, at least in the tradition that I've been uh, exposed to and have adopted and try to reflect in my life, there is um, dedicating one's activities, surrendering one's activities as a means of bringing to mind um, uh, and avoiding the pitfalls of attachment or um, working for the fruits of one's labor, so to speak. Um, and the claws that that puts in one and the maintenance of the ego that that uh, establishes. So um, that was desire, but this business of we're in the world and um, have to deal with paying bills. You know, you have bills to pay, I have bills to pay, and we're out there. And so having your attitude and your thought about that would be great to to chat about, um, uh, you know, like the want, yeah. you know, the want, the, the getting ahead or getting the money or getting the deal or the desire that's driving these things and um, how to reconcile or marry up one's spiritual desires and ambitions with um, you know the more materialistic ones, and how to how to find the balance. Maybe balance is the topic. I think that um, the, there's a, a fundamental progression that's taught in the West, and that is that focus or or exclusion is going to get you everywhere. Uh, focus means exclusion. What is it you choose to allow into your mind? And so we educate children. You know, don't look out the window at the trees and the birds and stuff. Look at the algebra on the board. And then there will be rewards for that or there will be public shaming ceremonies if you don't do that. You know, you're a distracted kid or whatever. Um, what we're trying to do is to teach kids that, that, you know, focused, exclusive thinking leads to pointed actions, which in turn may lead to achievements. And if you get enough achievements, you might have a shot at fulfillment. Now, uh, fulfillment is viewed as coming in a variety of forms. You know, maybe you'll have wonderful people around you. Maybe you'll have wonderful children. Maybe you'll have a beautiful house or many houses. Maybe you'll have a lot of dollars in the bank. Now, all of us have heard of, if we haven't actually met, people who have all of that. They are the super achievers who have the mountain range of achievements. Interestingly... <laughs> quite a good percentage of those people come to me and hire me to teach them what life's actually about because they got all that stuff and they're grossly unhappy. And so then we have to ask the question, well, if thought, action, and achievement don't lead to fulfillment, what does? And the Vedic answer is that fulfillment is not on the yonder side of achievements. Fulfillment is your own baseline. There's a place inside you that's the fulfillment place. Now, if you can learn how to go there to that place and saturate yourself with it, then that fulfillment is seeking outlet. So what does that mean? What, that place inside you, um, like in practical terms? There, you know, if, if you could just, if the you minus all the thoughts is, you know, if you without the thoughts is going to be a state of supreme inner contentedness. And so then, if you can have that experience, 
then once you have that, then when you go into thinking and action and achievement, you are exporting happiness through your thoughts, through your actions, through your achievements. You're taking fulfillment from where it is, which is inside you, and you're exporting it into the world through your activity. And so then it's not that you're thinking and acting and achieving in aid of getting fulfilled. You're already fulfilled. And now you're thinking and acting and achieving is a means whereby you're exporting inner fulfillment to the outside world. Well, okay. I, I think I'm following it, but a, a practical example will be helpful. Let's say you're dealing with a young lady who's a single mother, you know, a bank teller or someplace where she's not getting enough money and she needs more money and it's weighing on her. And you're going to tell her that, um, you know, you, that's not where real fulfillment is. Real fulfillment's inside. I'm going to tell her, and that was a very good counter to what I've just said, but to give you a practical example, in that situation, um, if asked, I would tell her that if you meditate every day, you're going to hit those creative wellsprings inside you that will help you challenge the assumptions about what you're capable of. You're going to hit those creative and calming uh, layers of you that bring happiness into every experience you're having already. And then uh, if there is an opportunity for you to expand and grow, it's going to come on the basis of you finding that infinite source of creative intelligence that's inside you. Then as you're in the process of adapting to change and interacting with change effectively, um, you're going to, your, your employment capacity is going to improve, your earning ability is going to improve and so on. And not only that, but the process of daily living is going to be far more enjoyable. Um, and so then rather than um, you placing your whole hope on, if only I can just focus, if only I can just keep my mind on the task, so if only I can achieve more right. and you know, butt my way through the glass ceiling here at the bank, um, then I'll finally get the fulfillment because my bet would be that you won't, even if you do do that. Uh, and so get that big infinite contentment field inside you activated and then bring that into action, bring that into interaction with the demands of the world and your whole life will change. Opportunities that you'd never even thought of before will almost as if miraculously appear in front of you, not because they actually appear more frequently, but you won't, you'll cease to miss them. Right. So what you're talking about in many regards is like a reprogramming, right? So reprogramming to um, come from a different place, but you're not going to come from a different place until you meditate so that you can better appreciate that place. That's right. And experience it. Experience it, trust it, have faith in it, and then it builds upon itself. It does. It, it builds on itself and it demonstrates to you. So then rather than you being reliant purely on faith or trust, you are, are reliant on knowledge. You know, uh, somebody reason. said... Reason. Exactly. Someone said to me the other day... Um, would you consider yourself a man of faith? And I said, no, I consider myself a man of knowledge. It's different. Um, faith means I haven't experienced the thing yet, but I have faith that I will. Um, you know, if 
uh, someone said, do you have faith the sun's going to rise tomorrow at 6.50? Uh, well, according to my iPhone, it says that it will rise at 6.50, and there are mathematical ways that you can prove that. I don't have faith it's going to rise at, arrive at 6.50. It's going to. Uh, there's just a sequence of knowledge that demonstrably is going to make it happen. You could bet anything you want on it, and it'll happen. So knowledge removes the need to have faith. If I Faith is a big conversation all unto itself, yeah. but I totally appreciate what you're saying, that what we're wanting to do is awaken reason so as to be able to um, uh, have options in one's life that were, are clear, yeah. right, and not working out of habitual mechanical uh, tendencies. And so that's awesome. Um, so this this path of a householder, right? This the, a person that's in the world and um, dealing with the stresses and 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 then coming to appreciate um, that maybe the thing they've been chasing, as you that was a great example, um, is not the be all end all, and they want access to this inner piece that is available 24-7, but they can't seem to access it. But yet they still run a hedge fund, run a marketing business, um, you know, have a social calendar or whatever that they're doing. Um, they have a gallery opening, whatever it might be. Um, what's propelling the, um, the activity? I think that person knows and can see who has been accessing that deep inner supreme contented field and they're identifying with that more and more. It doesn't matter what I do. If I'm a garbage man, everywhere I go, people are smiling because I've got this big smile on my face. If I'm a gallery operator, you know, people aren't really necessarily even coming to the gallery to see the works of art. That's an excuse or a pretext. But when they come in here, they, they feel the bubbling bliss and happiness that's going on. If I'm a banker, it's inexplicable to anyone as to why more people are coming in getting accounts at my bank. And the reason is that there's this radiant happiness in my branch. And it's, um, it's not that I'm trying to make a thing happen. What I'm doing is simply living a more radiant more expansive, more adaptive, more stable uh, life. And that on its own attracts everything good. Right. And maybe those are the desires you had referenced earlier, those things that come up in one's life that really maybe aren't desires, but they're opportunities. They're opportunities to serve. That's right, exactly. And then everything becomes an opportunity to serve because uh, it's not a, a matter of so much of what you're doing, it's the way in which you're doing it. Pretty cool. Yeah. Right? Mm. So I guess we can go on and on and on, right? <laughs> yes, on and on, Ananda. So I'm, I'm yeah, <laughs> such as Ananda, right? Um, okay, so since we're here, um, are, are you always in bliss? Are you ever like down and out? Do you ever have bad days? And how do you deal with that? Um, I try to think of what should have been the darkest moments of my life. Um, and of course, I, I can't say that I've always been like this, even though we tend, when we get into a more heightened consciousness state, we tend to backdate it. Our mind looks back and says, I think I was always like this. Um, but in fact, you weren't. <laughs> but uh, 
you know, if I think of deaths in the family, um, what happened when my father died, who I was very close, I was very close with my father. People said to me after the funeral, are you okay? You were the strong one in the family. Um, you were, you never cried. I didn't see you cry. And I thought about it and I thought, I didn't get sad. Um, I saw it coming. He was sick for a long time. I knew uh, that um, whatever memory I had of him was still accessible by me. I could still access everything. I knew that most of my love for him had happened without him being present. He'd been absent. You know, he'd been somewhere else other than where I was. So, um, you know, the phenomenon of feeling communing and loving and all of that continued and a body had died. And that's the way I was actually experiencing it. Now, it did have a slightly bewildering effect on other people who were crying a lot. Um, but they did all thank me for being the strong one. Um, I can't say that I was like in bubbles of bliss while I was at the funeral and things. But, um, but I certainly was not affected in the way that you would predict somebody who was very close to a parent sure. would have been affected. Um, when, uh, and it's you know no secret that the Transcendental Meditation Organization sued me about, it was all over the press about uh, five years ago. Um, I saw it as an opportunity to broaden the knowledge. Um, it didn't concern me in the least. I had a sense of knowing that there was a mistake being made and somehow, even though I never volunteered for it, I was being volunteered to be the corrector of the mistake. There's a certain faith there. Yeah. Right? But it, but it, was, it was more like experience. Right. You know, based on my experience in the past where I've been selected for a job. Right. This was just another job I was being selected for. So do you ever find yourself like in a state of attachment, in the state of being identified with whatever, either a mood or a position? Or a little, a little. Um, you know, I would say, you know, the percentages are kind of like 95 not attached to a specific outcome or specific timing and maybe about 5% I'd prefer to see it happen that way. Right. Preference, right. aversion. Exactly. But I, I, um, I don't base, you know, like, oh man, am I ever going to feel bad if that doesn't happen? Right. Um, I can remember, uh, another situation where I got in legally embroiled with something separate to this one that I just mentioned, where, um, you know, the antagonist got their lawyers to call me and say, Mr. Knowles, you know, if you lose this thing, um, you might lose everything. In fact, you could even end up in jail. Well, there were years and years ago, I used to teach meditation in jails and in prisons and in the toughest prisons in the world. Um, my answer spontaneously coming out of my mouth was, I actually like jails. <laughs> be, be careful. Be careful. I said, I, said, I you know, I live the words we utter. Or I've, I've, like I've spent a lot of time in those places. Um, <laughs> and uh, that doesn't, that thought's not a worrying thought. Do you have any other thoughts that right. can worry me? Um, my, my mind is so geared to looking at almost any outcome right. as being an opportunity for me to be whatever I am in that situation that I know that's all that's ever going to happen.
Right. That, you know, no matter where I end up, no matter what my assignment is, as it were, I will be able to equip myself well because I've been well trained. Yeah. And thank goodness I got that training that gave me this experience. So I don't ever, uh, I, I don't get assailed by doubt. Sure. Mm. Well, that's awesome it's to be free of that. Um, well, do you have any questions that arise for you in just our conversation where you see I'm coming from? I'm, you know, if, I, yeah. if I'm projecting something? Um, the only thing that comes for me is, um, for you, is um, how can I get you in front of a conference or convention of all my teachers? Hmm. Um, because we're a collective. Uh, we are having um, a convention of teachers in India in January on the from the for four days from the sixteenth to the to the twentieth um, or so. And um, you know, if you felt like coming over, uh, we could look at that. Well, I, I'm I'm open to discussing it, and I I think we share the same objective. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a personal transformation when you can be part of that in someone's life, there is no greater service, I don't think. And there's, um, it's, uh, it's really transformative. Not only it's a two way thing, you know, we, we, we are served by serving and I really feel that. And I've had the benefit of that experience. Um, and so, um, bringing people, um, to the knowledge that, they have at the ready within themselves access um, to uh, unlimited potential yeah. is a huge thing. And I, I have had the benefit of witnessing that and being a part of that um, uh, just in advancing a curriculum, if you will. And um, it's with that experience behind me um, that I feel... Um, I'd like to do more of that in whatever way. And if we can uh, expand that, because I think the world needs it, as, as I think we both have that point of view. Um, there's so much bearing down, so much speed happening, so much distraction happening, um, that there is, uh, and it's not just that there's a real need for it, it's, it's so readily available that um, it's a shame for it not to be happening if it could be happening. And since we have some, or at least speaking for myself, modicum of knowledge, some a, a little something to offer, it'd be great to be able to impart that. Um, you clearly have uh, incredible experience, knowledge, and work, um, and presence. Um, and it would be wonderful to um, spend more time with you, get to know you, aside from even with headphones yeah. on our head, yeah, just, exactly. you know, hanging out and talk. Yeah. And um, what, what, and explore what can be done to advance um, this, because I believe that the divisions in the world um, can, uh, the edges can be softened, and um, the rhetoric and, and the difficulties and the challenges that plague us um, are are really solvable, yeah. uh, but they do require this. Yeah. Um, I also believe that it's not for everybody, right? Yeah. So not everybody's going to like be open to this, and, that, and that's fine too. Uh, but to those who might be, 
it's putting that out there and finding a way. And I think, you know, I, in addition to going to a philosophy school and meditating, I go to a church because I have a little five-year-old and I think there's great things happening there. And I think there's all sorts of ways to come to the knowledge of this inner stillness. Yeah. And um, so I think what we're talking about in terms of you and the teachers you've initiated and uh, guide and serve as guru to them, um, I think that's a platform to take advantage of, to put the word out there and uh, for the betterment of humanity. I would love to have uh, opportunities, as you said, just to uh, uh, explore what Aussie, I lived in Australia for 30 years and they would call it mateship, you know, uh, to just to be mates and hang, yeah. out, hang out with you. That's cool. Mateship. Yeah. But, um, but I, I think also, um, I would love to have an opportunity to let you watch me right. standing and delivering and, and teaching. Um, prior to the four day teachers conference, there's a, a retreat that I'm conducting for 10 days for anyone who's learned Vedic meditation or indeed people who want to learn it. They can actually come there and be initiated in the first four days of the mm. retreat. Um, that retreat will be visited by or we will visit as a group, the Shankaracharya, um, and uh, who since January um, has been you know, holding that, that position as commanded by his master. By the way, he was very resistant he didn't want to do it. Hmm. Um, he begged his master, don't, don't right. make me do this. <laughs> um, it would be fabulous for uh, you to use our good offices mm-hmm. with, uh, because with, it's hard to get to see a person like that. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd love for you to be able to meet him and perhaps we can even visit Vasudevanand, um, his master. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we could turn a thing like that into quite a feast of knowledge and it would give you not just an understanding of how I teach and the way I teach, but also to meet the teachers. And because one of the things that's lacking in my group of 150 or so, they won't all be there, there'll probably be 30 or 40 of them mm-hmm. there, um, is one of the things that's lacking is a real sense of communal purpose. Um, because I, my starting point, I'd been resistant to creating a hierarchical organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tell all of them when I train them exactly what Maharishi told me when he trained me. I'm not your guru. Once you have learned this, mm-hmm. we're colleagues. Right. Um, and so we are collegial. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, the teachers have always wanted me to be the guy who says, this is the way we're doing things. Instead, I've been remarkably democratic and said to them, how are we doing things? Right. You know, and people will, you know, they're kind of hoping I'm going to give some top-down direction. Sure. Um, and probably would respond well to it if I did, but I am also wanting them to... Well, I think there's a way to do that. There's a way to, um, you know, demonstrate some thought leadership in that area and create and stimulate um, uh, a collaborative... Um, arrival and but with the hypothesis that you can bring to the table yeah. and use that as a means to stimulate um, a greater consistency maybe or unified point of view on how to um, 
how to empower everybody that's doing this to do it better and do more of it for all the various reasons. Well, I'm getting goosebumps because that's exactly <laughs> what they need to hear. The, yeah. the, those words um, would have like a shot in the arm effect on this group of teachers. Um, and so... Um, well, good. So we'll explore all that. The I'm, universe I'm... is desiring through me <laughs> for you yeah. to be there. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely honored. Yeah. Um, none of this is what I had expected. And I just want to keep taking it to the next steps to see how we can be helping each other yeah. to help uh, anybody that is open to the kind of thing we're talking about. Thank you very much. Thank it's you. such a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. For listeners, I'd like to, first of all, um, say that there's an opportunity that's going to appear in the formatting of this conversation. If you'd care to make a contribution, financial contribution to the continuance of the production of these um, forums and uh, recordings, then um, please look at that and uh, please view that kindly and um, you know, all assistance will be made. Uh, we will also, and I mentioned to my producer, Eric, that um, such uh, contributions would be dealt with in a very transparent way, would have open books, and so the people who are making contributions would be able to see the ways in which the money is being spent. The other part is that, um, Ray, um, if people who are business people would like to contact you, um, you know, hopefully there'll be a way that we can put this in writing, but how would they do that? What would people who are listening to this and go, man, I want that guy. Right. Well, email probably would be the best, and I'm open to receiving that. It's rayg at ggny.com. The company is Gray and Gustafson. The website is ggny.com. Um, and you're welcome to check it out and give us a call. Uh, we've been in business for 20-plus years, working with both Fortune 100 international brands as well as smaller ones. Um, and I have to say, we've referenced the business and my personal involvement in the philosophy school. And my um, objective in sitting here and talking with you really was not on behalf of either of those institutions. It was um, really with the idea of just advancing our mutual um, understandings and advancing um, the work we might be able to do together to broaden this message. Yep. Fabulous. And, and it was taken in that way, too. Thank you. Yeah, great. So in the spirit of um, the conversation and our intention here, um, it's beginning a, a, an event like this with a pause and a dedication um, is helpful, and so is a concluding an event. And I'm sure that you do something to this effect anyhow, but I thought since you offered the invocation... I can uh, maybe offer the wrap-up. Um, and we do that, we begin by just falling deeply still. And surrendering all that has taken place. The fruit of this conversation. And the benefits and the insights that may arise are for the benefit of humanity and the larger self of all, and we surrender it to that one self by sounding Om Paramatmane Nama Iti Jai Gurudev If you're enjoying these podcasts 
I'll spend a moment talking about how you can make your individual contribution to the group effort of these podcasts. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.